through the Word of God. We don't get faith by reading the Word of God. If that, was the, if that was the case, these theologians and these Bible icons should be moving mountains all over the world because they've got more word in them than anybody else in the planet. I know guys that can machine gun scripture across the room, but that's not the context of that verse. The context, the Bible is always, the word is always to lead us into the spirit. The spirit is always to lead us into truth and into power. That's the, that's the game, right? And so the, the Word of God is, is, is there for a function. The Holy Spirit speaks a language, and it's called the, Spirit, it's called the Word. So you want to know the language of the Spirit? You can speak in tongues if you want to, but if you want to know the language of the Spirit, the Spirit speaks Scripture. And so when Romans is telling us where faith comes from, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I know people that would listen to the Bible on audio over and over again because they're trying to build their faith. There's nothing wrong with that, but in the end, it doesn't produce the type of active faith that God is looking for. We, we, our faith comes by hearing the Spirit of God. When Israel came out of Egypt, they came out by the voice of the Lord. He told them to follow his voice. He tells us again in Hebrews the same thing he told them. Today, if you will hear my voice. In the early church, they didn't have a Bible. I'm not against the Bible. I'm a biblicist. You're going to get a lot of deep Bible today. I'm all in on the Bible. But what we need to do is we put emphasis on certain things over others when we fail to understand that the key isn't the issue. The key, we go, oh, it's all about the key, it's all about the key. Well, the key doesn't mean anything unless you get in the car, right? So the scripture's important, but it doesn't mean anything unless you empower it with the spirit. It means nothing. We have sterile churches, neutered, powerless, non-productive, because they don't understand power. We've got Bible to the hilt. We create people who are filled with knowledge but couldn't care less know all the right things, but are completely in, no compassion, no care, no concern, no life, no power. Praying for you, brother. Oh, pray for me, I'm in the hospital. Nope, it's Lord's will, it's the Lord's will. Completely absent, neutered and powerless. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, professing godliness, but denying what? Power. Last days, church is marked by knowledge in an absence of power. Laodicea, last day's church, mock, marked by an indulgence. You are rich and in need of nothing. Oh my gosh, can we say that? We got, we got pastors driving Bugattis. I don't drive a Bugatti, I drive a used car. So don't get to like, what's the pastor's driving a Bugatti? For what, man? To what end? To what end? You know, I mean, it's like we're rich in need of nothing and you don't, do not know that you were blind, poor, and naked. You're rich in all the material things, but you are completely blind spiritually. You are completely impoverished spiritually. You're completely, you, you lack the things that are necessary. What I say where richness is, you don't have any of it. You have none of it. Oh, outwardly you look amazing, but you know, no, I mean, it's true. I wish we had more going on around here. I wish we had vibrating chairs in a fish tank. I'd, I'd be all in on that and be like, yeah. Because I know we got word and I know we got power. I'm not against vibrating chairs in a fish tank. But we don't lead with vibrating chairs in a fish tank. Churches lead with that stuff. They lead with the light show. You're leading with a light show. We're not to lead with a light show. We're to lead with the Spirit of God. We're to lead with the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ. I'm all about a light show. You know? I'd love surround sound. I'd love laser beams shooting all over the room. That's awesome. I think it's great. 
But that means nothing. It's style without substance. If we lack the substance of the truth. And that's our problem. Faith, learning to hear, comes by the word of God. It's always about discerning the voice of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God speaks through the conscience, the Spirit of God speaks through the word, and the Spirit of God speaks to the heart. And everything he speaks will always be in harmony with the word of God. It will not necessarily be a chapter and verse, but it will be in line with the character of Scripture, and it will be in line with the context of Scripture. How do you learn to hear the Word of God? One of the, one of the key ways is to get the Scripture in you. You learn to hear through that. You learn to hear through the Word of God. But just repetitively listening to the Word of God does not build your faith. I mean, we get, you know, how, many, how many of you, you've been in church for a while and you meet these type of Christians, and they'll, they'll be like completely freaked out and completely stressed out, but they'll be able to machine gun you a few verses. Oh, I know, I know, my God will suffer on my knees according to the person in Christ Jesus. But I'm really freaking out right now. They can quote a verse, but they're in panic, right? I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's, it doesn't, if it doesn't produce, then we need to back up and look at why. There is a faith that produces. There's a faith. Faith, say this with me, faith, faith. has no feeling. Faith is clarity. That's what faith is. Faith is clarity. It's a knowing that you know that you know. There's, there's rarely, rarely, in a minority of instances, is there ever emotion attached to faith. Almost never is there emotion. Sometimes maybe, but a little bit. But most of the time, faith, the form of faith is clarity. It's just clear. Everything's just clear. And I know. I, like the lady that, like the, with the woman, she said, I don't know. I'm just clear. I just feel that everything's going to be all right. She didn't have this emotion. She didn't have this euphoric surge of the spirit moving through her. She didn't like strike a pose and tell me, thus says the Lord. You know, she just felt that she felt clarity. That's the faith of God coming to her. Faith comes from the Lord. He gives each one of us a measure of faith. So there's two different ways this happens. You have a measure of faith, like muscles. You got to exercise it. Faith without works is dead. Every one of you has faith. That faith didn't come from you. It, gave, it came from the Lord. It came from the Lord. So what happens when, you, when, 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 when Jesus calls you to repentance and calls you to give his life to him? A clarity comes into your heart. A faith is imparted to you. An ability to believe. And things become clear to you that this is what you must do. And when you turn against that, that's where the profanity of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit is offering something that you completely don't deserve. We know what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is? It's when the Holy Spirit illuminates the heart and makes it very clear to you that you are supposed to do this. He's ministering to you that you're lost, and he's offering and extending to you an open heart and an ability to receive the gospel. And when you reject that, you're profaning him. The Bible says you treat the blood of the covenant as a common thing. You trample underfoot the, son of the, the, the spirit of grace. You're walking on him. That, and it doesn't mean, well, I did that before. It doesn't mean, no, look, we, you know, my spirit will not always strive with man. It's not a one-time encounter. If you die in that condition... And what happens is a lot of people, when it comes to Christ, the Spirit of God bears witness with their heart. Their heart becomes open, and they, they're like, wow, I need to do this, and their head kicks in immediately. I don't understand this. This is religion. This is manipulation. This is emotion. What are you talking about? This isn't true. This isn't true. This isn't true. God never ministers to your mind. He always ministers to the heart. This isn't, this isn't a gospel of the intellect. The intellect's important, but it's not a gospel of the intellect. It's, an, it's, a, it's if you believe in your, Right. He didn't say if, you, if you're, you can intellectually grasp the concept that I'm presenting to you, you can be saved. He never gives you that. 
In fact, you don't understand it at all. Salvation makes no sense. It doesn't. But you know you need to do it. But it makes no sense to you. In your mind, it's like, this doesn't make any sense, but I just know I need to do this. So we give ourselves to that. Faith comes from the Lord. And it also says, faith is the, have faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two 22 says, but it's not even just have faith in God. It's have the faith of God. That's the actual translation of that. And I think they translated it that way because they didn't understand the context that this is speaking from. It's talking from a spiritual dynamic. Have the faith of God. Well, how many knows God's faith is perfect? Do you know that? He doesn't doubt one moment of any time. There's no doubt in him at all. No doubt. That's why even when you say it, the one thing that always blows my mind about Jesus is he always takes you at your word. I have watched him time and again take people at the word that they say. And I'm looking at the person and I'm thinking, I don't know if I believe what they're saying. And then I'm looking at the person and I'm thinking, I don't even think they believe they, th what they're saying. But the Lord believes what they're saying. He believes because in him there is no doubt. He has no doubt. If you say something to the Lord, he believes it. He believes it. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. God is love. He believes all things. When you look to yourself, folks, so have the faith of God, what does that look like? When you look at a situation and it looks impossible to you and everybody's telling you something different, the guy's going in hospice, he's not going to make it two weeks, this guy's going to be dead in 48 hours, everything's telling you something, and what does the faith of God look like? You go to the Lord and you go, what do you say? What is your word, Lord, in spite of all of this? That's the faith of God. And you let the clarity of God come to you. If God says live and not die, you're going to live and not die. If God says succeed and not fail, then he's going to see it. If he tells you it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. But it doesn't look okay, but it doesn't seem okay. But it doesn't, And we do start doing mental gymnastics, right? We have the USA Gymnastics team going on in our mind, and we're just jumping all over the trampoline. Now, we put our hope and our faith, and I'm trying to give you an understanding of what faith is, where you find it. It's clarity, and you find it in the Lord. Jesus has no problem with you asking him for faith. There's no problem. What he does is he corrects them for not having enough faith. And where's faith come from? Faith comes from him. Lord, I need faith. I need faith. He borrows it. God lends his faith all day long. Jesus actually accepts faith. When the guy was let down through the roof of the ceiling, Jesus saw the faith of what? His friends, right? Jesus didn't see the faith of the guy lying on the mat. Jesus said, these guys believe. He saw their faith, and he let, them, he let that guy borrow that, their faith. We can loan faith. And we, Jesus loans it out all day. Faith, say this with me. Faith is the currency of heaven. It's true. This is an important understanding. Say this with me. Heaven is not moved by human need. Let that sizzle. Y'all get really uncomfortable, squirm a little bit. Human need does not move heaven. Human need will never move heaven. Everything that heaven is going to do about human need, he did through the cross. Faith moves heaven. Human need does not move heaven. Jesus walked past tons of people in human need. Did nothing. Did nothing. Read your Bible. Walked right on by. Faith moved him. Blind Bartimaeus is on the street corner, walking on by. The woman with the issue of blood is standing in the crowd. You don't think Jesus knows she's there? You can't think he can't discern the healing in the room that needs to happen? He walked right on by because human need was not what he's going for. He's going for faith. Faith is the currency of heaven. That's why when we pray victim prayers, they don't do anything. When we pray beggar prayers, they don't do anything. 
Oh, God, I just beg you. Oh, God, he does not does nothing. When you pray like a victim, it does nothing. God does not recognize you as a victim, and God does not recognize you as a, as, um, as a beggar. He doesn't see you that way. They look good emotionally. When we all pray, oh, God, would you shut you? Oh, Sister Judy. Oh, how she loves you, Lord. Oh, God, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Look at the poor children on the street with nothing to eat. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing. Do you know why? Because he sent his spirit and he's empowered a body. Not only that, he's given you an identity. He's given you an authority. And he expects you to take your rightful place in your identity. And he expects you to exercise the authority you've been given. He will not do for you what he has given you the power to do. When he sees you, he doesn't see you as a beggar. When I come to him begging, he goes, who's this? Somebody get, get Gabriel over here. Gabriel, you know this guy? Who's this beggar that's standing here? I don't know who this guy is. But when I take the posture as a son, he knows me. When I stand before my father as a son, I'm a son of the highest. He's like, that's my boy. This is mine by right of inheritance. He says, yes, it is. I stand forth and I declare it. I stand forth and I proclaim it. Lord, this is the need in the world. Father, I ask that you would give wisdom to this, to this situation. Is there something you want us to do in this situation? If there is, then provide wisdom to the matter. He doesn't answer begging prayers, Christian, so stop praying them. The only people who are impressed with the begging prayer are the people around you. Everybody's impressed. Oh, look how she this laments. Look how he, look, he cries. Oh, he's on his hands and knees begging God. How holy. It's vain, vain, only for the applause of men. Heaven does not recognize it ever. Take your rightful place, stand in faith, claim your right of inheritance, it's yours. Oh, well, we don't want to boast against the Lord, Kevin. We don't want to be proud. We're just humble servants. We're just humble. You're sons and daughters of a king who takes no honor in you being anything less than the standard that he has put upon you. Did anybody here ask for an inheritance? Did you ask for it? You didn't. Well, you do. Yeah, you asked for it, but he gave it to you. It's yours. You can ask for what's yours once you know it's yours. We didn't ask. Did you? You didn't ask him when he saved you, Lord, call me your son. You didn't ask him when he saved you, Lord, call me your daughter. You didn't ask for that. You didn't ask for it. But you know what he does? He calls you that. He calls you son and he calls you daughter. He puts a title on you that's beyond your mind and beyond your thinking. He calls you what you are long before you arrive there. Jesus sees you as you are. Your circumstances, your situation shows you nothing about what he says you are. You are a son of the highest, everyone in this room. Say, you don't know what I did with last night. I said, I don't really care what you did last night. You're still a son of the highest. I had a guy in the room and he's saying, oh, I've been sinning, pastor. The anointing's left me. I've been sinning, pastor. The anointing's gone. Oh, wretched sinner am I. Oh, I said, who told you that? Who told you the anointing left you? The anointing hasn't left you. Sin does not disqualify your anointing. The only thing sin does is disqualify the inheritance. That's all it does. It's like, well, I don't feel the anointing anymore. I go, yeah, because you're bound by guilt and shame. That's why I don't feel the anointing anymore. But the anointing's there, guaranteed. <laughs> you know why? Because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, number one. That's right. It means he doesn't change his mind. What he gives you, he doesn't take away. What he gives you, he doesn't diminish. He doesn't diminish. And better yet, what he gives you is not about you. 
It has nothing to do with you. It's not because you're special. It's because he's generous. It's not because you're amazing. It's because he's loving. It's because he's kind. It's because he's capable. And most importantly, more than anything else, it's because he wants to. He wants to. That's the deal. You can't disqualify if you never qualified. You didn't qualify. You didn't qualify. There's nothing that you did to qualify. You did nothing to qualify other than receive the offer that he, uh, that he extended. So if you didn't qualify you, then how can you disqualify you? You can't. Well, run the race with endurance. You don't want to be disqualified. You don't want to run as a man of BTR. What you're disqualifying is not eternity. You're disqualifying destiny. E say this with me. Eternity and destiny are two separate, two separate eggs. They are. You're born again. You have eternity. But you also have a destiny in this world. Now, whether or not you, you, Jesus will make sure that the eternal thing is proclaimed. He's going to take care of it, regardless of you manifest destiny or not. If you don't, that's up to you. Eternity, he's got you locked. But your destiny, that's yet to be determined. That, that's up in the air. Jesus does not guarantee your destiny. He offers it to you. He offers it to you. That's all he does. And what he's offering you is a partnership into the destiny. He will not fulfill anyone's destiny without partnership on their behalf. He won't do it. He will not want for you what you do not want for yourself. He will not. He will not. So there's lots of born-again Christians. Oh, I have a calling. I have a calling. Yeah, what are you doing about it? Nothing. Okay. And you think it's just going to happen by default? God's told me to start businesses. God's told me to plant churches. God's told me to write books. God's told me that this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and all this other stuff. Well, what are you doing about it? Nothing. It is not going to happen out of a vacuum. It requires a partnership, a divine partnership in faith. It doesn't happen any other way. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is the currency of heaven. Heaven is not moved by human need. I'll challenge that anywhere else, anybody. The laments don't work. Churches teach people how to cry at the altar. I'm like, for what purpose? They have classes in churches. Are you ready for this? They teach you how to weep at the altar. I'm like, well, we have classes that teach you how to stand on your feet like a son and a daughter. That's what we do. We're not laying down. We're not beggars. We're not victims. We're sons and daughters. Read it. He tells them, stand on your feet over and over again. Get up, get up, get up, get up. People go, I don't understand this. Well, let me put it to you in an easy context. You're in a grocery store. Your kid's about seven years old, right? And they, throw on the, they lay on the floor, and they're just rolling around doing a tantrum. Mommy! Oh, mommy! Do you have any glory in that? Do you want to get on the microphone and go, ladies and gentlemen, please come to aisle seven. I want you to see the child of the century, the child that will make all other children look foolish. Come right on in and see my glorious child. You're not, you're not inviting people to come see that. That's a shame to you. Is it not? Come on, let's be honest. And you're like, come on, get in the car. I can't even go grocery shopping. You're going to embarrass me. You're running into the car. And you think Jesus has, Jesus is like, look at my children down there, weeping and begging, weeping and begging my children. Look at them all. He has honor in that? 
He has honor when sons and daughters stand before him as nobles, as princes and princesses of an eternal kingdom, heirs of this world and the one to come. That's what we are, blood-bought saints of the living God, not beggars. Who told you that? I mean, I'm telling you, most of the te a lot of there's teaching in the church that needs a high karate. You know? I like film noir. Anybody like film noir? Anybody know what film noir is? No? Nobody? Okay, it's movies made in the 50s, usually crime, and there's always a fight, right? It's always a fight. And they fight in, like, all these artistic ways. And there's one, there's one scene, I can't remember how the guy did it, but he went, oh, yeah, he hit him like this. The guy, they're out there arguing, and so they get the fight starts, and he slaps him this way, he slaps him this way, and then he punches him in the face, and the guy flies back into the bushes. And I thought, now that is a cool move. I don't know. Slap, slap, smack, into the thing. Anyway, it's my own personal thing. If you don't get it, look up film noir. Watch yourself a film noir. Get yourself a Cinnabon. Relax, you know. Faith is the currency of heaven. Faith must be grown. You have to grow faith. Next slide. Now we're going to jump off the deep end. We're going to talk about Noah. In order to talk about Noah, all right, so you guys okay? Are we all right? All right. I, I know I'm ranting. I know I'm evacuating some things here that need to be said in order for impartation to happen. We're gonna, we're gonna deep dive into the scripture here and we're gonna answer a couple of questions. And I wanna talk to you, they're gonna give you just like four things about Noah. But before we talk about Noah, we have to understand the context. Say this with me. To understand the Old Testament, to understand the people in the Old Testament, and to understand the events in the Old Testament, I must understand the context context of the Old Testament is not our context. We live in an age that's post-Jesus. Post the gospel, the blood has been shed, the king is resurrected, the spirit has been given, and we've had 2,000 years of that. Okay, So the world has been benefiting from that. This is a world, in the Bible there's a, there's a word called dispensations. And the word dispensation means system of government. The way God was ruling in the earth is determined by the dispensation. And they're called ages, epochs, if you want a Greek word for it. Dispensation, so I'll give them to you. In the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, it was called the dispensation or the epoch or the age of innocence. So God created man and woman, and it was innocence. It was love between a father and his children. It was innocence. Everything was beautiful. Everything was new. Well, Adam and Eve, they, that didn't last too long. I don't know if you're aware of that, right? Adam and Eve sinned. What happened when they sinned? is it cast the world into an age that, the, I don't come up with this word, but this is what theologians will call it. It's called, say it with me, antediluvian. That's right, let's say it again, antediluvian. Right, now you feel really smart, you feel like biblical, right? It's the antediluvian age. It's the, it's the age before the flood. And what happened when Adam and Eve fell is it was an age of lawlessness. There really wasn't any laws. And it was just chaos and craziness, which led in, which preceded the flood. And we're gonna talk about that. After the antediluvian age, God created, there was an age of the patriarchs. God began to build his community through families. Moses, Abraham, or excuse me, not Moses, um, Noah, Abraham, um, and Isaac and Jacob. He began to build through the patriarchs, through father figures and family-centered relationships. He governed mankind through that, through family-centric. 
Then he created um, the laws and the prophets. He threw out of order. And law and the prophets, God began, he took Moses and he gave law. And then through the end of the law became the prophets. He began to minister and judge and move among the people through his word and through prophetic, through the law and the prophets. Then he brought in judges because the people wouldn't obey the word. And so they would end up getting into all these really dark places. And they find themselves in all these really bad places. And what the word judge means is it means deliverer. It's not judge like God put judges over the people like he's running around pointing the finger at people. The word judgment, deliverer. So what would happen is, is the people would, would obey the word, then they would disobey the Lord, and they'd start to drift, and they'd find themselves in bondage. They would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would raise up a judge, and that, that judge was a deliverer. So you have Gideon, you have Samson, you have Deborah. They were people that God raised up to deliver people. They weren't perfect. You ever read the book of Judges? They are some messy people. There's not one judge that wasn't seriously screwed up. I mean, Deborah, maybe. She's the only one I can think of that really doesn't have a lot of Gideon, maybe. But Gideon had his issues, too. They all have issues, all of them. Jephthah, anybody want to read about Jephthah? Good Lord. That guy was a, that guy. His, his mother was a prostitute. I don't even want to get into that. I'll end up explaining that, and that'll be really crazy. Anyway, so, didn't we get, anybody ever heard of this, the church age? Anybody ever heard of this? Church age? No one's ever heard of the church age? We're in the church age, the age of grace. So from, from the law and the prophets through the cross, now we're in a period of time. We're living in an age in which God is governing through the world, through the church. This is a system of government, is through the church. The church is to be about building the kingdom, the king's rulership and dominion, and God is ruling and reigning through the church. Then it will become something called, anybody ever heard of millennial age? Right? Christ returns, and he himself rules. Okay? Understand this? So I want you to understand age. Where Moses comes in, where Noah comes in, is he comes into the antediluvian age. What you have to understand is what was happening during that time period. It's, it's a world that's not like ours. Entirely different than ours. Entirely different. The antediluvian age, for instance, okay? It was lawless. There was no spiritual veil. Adam and Eve, God created heaven and earth to be one. When God originally created the earth, God did what with Adam in the garden? What did he do? Anybody? He walked with Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the garden. There was, no, there was a merger between those two worlds. Seeing angels and seeing supernaturals, it was a world that was both physical and super. It was natural and supernatural. It's at the same time. The two worlds were one. Okay? So that's what happened. Adam and Eve fell, and instead of there being no veil of the Father's kingdom, so... Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, the father vacated his kingdom. Adam was given rulership of the earth. And when he gave rulership to the devil, which is what he did, he denied God, you will not rule over us. We choose to rule ourselves, which is in a sense aligning with, with Satan. God vacated his presence from the earth. That's what he did. But the veil was still there. In other words, the world after the flood, or excuse me, before the flood, the world after Adam, but before the flood, there was no spiritual veil. There was an interaction, but the veil that they, in other words, you could see spiritual things going on with your eyes. So before the fall, it was angelic interaction, it was God interaction, and everything was there, and it was as one. Eve was tempted by a serpent. Anybody know that? You remember that? You know the story? Everybody thinks it's a little garden snake. Me, 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 me. The Bible doesn't say that. It says a hanefesh. The Hebrew word nefesh means serpent. Hanefesh means serpent-like. And what most believe, and there's, there's hieroglyphs of this type of being, is an angelic being with a serpentine-like form. Okay? 
So she, Eve's used to seeing angels, normal angels all the time. Now here comes an angel. Satan masquerades as a what? Angel of light. Thank you very much. So you see the context. And so more than likely, this Hanafesh comes to Eve. She deceives Eve. She thinks it's an angel. Looks like an angel. A little different than the rest. But hey, angel nonetheless. She doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. They end up partnering with this angel. They fall. This Hanafesh, this serpentine-like being, leads them away. It was normal to her. It didn't freak her out. Right? People go, if the devil came in the room, we'd all run for the door. If the devil came in the room, you'd worship him. You would be tempted to worship him. He is an angel of light. He is a being of, uh, he, is a, he masquerades. He doesn't come in here with a devil with a pitchfork in a, in a triangle tail. You think he's coming at you like that? You're crazy. He comes to you in an entirely different form. And when he appears, if he, when he, if he was to manifest himself like that, he would come in a, you would be tempted to worship him. Eve buys into the lie of the Hanafesh. They fall, but the veil is not, is, there's no veil. They're still able to see the supernatural. Only now they're not seeing God, they're seeing demonic. They're seeing fallen angels. What happens, and here we're going to take a jump. I'm going to deal with a portion of scripture related to Noah that, or, that nobody really likes to deal with. Churches don't like to deal with this because it gets a little weird. Right? You say, weird, you say, weird. What gets weird about it? Because it says, there were giants in the earth in those days, and thereafter, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these same became mighty men, men of old, men of renown, and God saw the weakness of man was great in the earth, and the imagination of their hearts was evil only continually. What's happening here is you have a group of fallen angels that somehow, some way, are capable of copulating with females. And they have children. And these children become two races of beings. They're called Nephilim, and they're called uh, Raphaim, right? And so they become the Nephilim. They become these giants. They become humanoid, and hu they're human beings. They're, they're, some of them are giants, and some of them are humanoid in form. These, they, they, they copulate with these people. God doesn't spend a lot of time on this, and this is what I, tell, I told first service. I said, if you read about this period, it's, it, the reason that I'm telling you this is because you need to understand why God flooded the earth. God didn't flood the earth because he's walking around with a stick waiting for people to screw up so he can lay one on them. He flooded the earth because all of mankind had become genetically corrupted. There was a genetic corruption going on in the earth, and the Bible says man was corrupted. Noah was not. It says Noah was perfect in his generations. What the Bible is implying is that Noah was genetically perfect. There was no genetic manipulation. There was nothing going on there, right? This is what was going on during that time, and that's why the flood happened, is these angelic beings, and I'm going to show you the verses, left their first abode. They joined themselves unto this. They did what was unnatural. They went after bodies that were not their kind. Question is, why were they doing that? Why were they doing that? What did God tell the serpent in the garden? Anybody? I will put enmity where? Between your seed and her seed, and you shall bruise his heel, and he shall crush your head. And so the devil knows that the seed of the woman is his doom. So what is he corrupting? What is he corrupting? The seed of the woman. He's trying to genetically corrupt the seed of the woman because if he can genetically corrupt the seed of the woman, then he never has to worry about his doom. Jesus is the seed of the woman that crushed his head. But what he's doing here, he understands prophecy. He, does, he hears it, but he doesn't know where this thing's going. So he's like, okay. So God said, the seed of the woman's going to do this. Well, we know God's going to do something, so we need to get out in front of this. And so they strate they're strategic, but they're, they're intelligent and strategic, but they're not creative. They can't invent anything. They mirror 
And they, they, but they definitely have strategy. They're very strategic in what they do. And so these devils get out in front of it and they start corrupting the seed of the woman. Why? To prevent the fulfillment of what's going on here. And so all of this is going on. Next slide. Here I'll show you. Every culture has two stories. They all have a flood story and they all have a story of giants. I don't care where you go. I don't care. You can go to, uh, Rika was just telling me that she has a missionary that works in, um, a friend of theirs, a South African guy who works in the jungles in the Amazon, and he said, and they all have the story of the flood. I said, yep, and they probably all have the story of the giants, and they don't know anything about God. No matter where you go, all cultures in their ancient, as far back as you go, wherever culture or society it is, they all have a story. This is Egypt. This is one of the hieroglyphs. Egypt has tons of them. All of their hieroglyphs show giants, all of them. And, of course, the geologists will go, or the uh, archaeologists will go, it's because they wanted their, their leaders to seem high in stature. No, they were giants. They were giants. Next slide. This is a Babylonian relief. This is Gilgamesh, one of the most famous known lore of giants. Right? Next slide. That's Babylon. This is Sumerian and Assyrian. There again, you see. And what happened was is these tyrant beings were born and they began to dominate the earth and they began to infuse wickedness into mankind. They not only, they not, this is where the devil, what he, he merchandised wickedness. That's one of the things the Bible says about the devil is that his, not, his wickedness isn't enough for him. He has to multiply his wickedness. He merchandises it. And so these angelic beings through this corruption, they not only were corrupting genetically human, humankind, but they were also uh, merchandising wickedness among mankind. And so God saw that the evil was continual and it was endless and he found Noah and Noah was perfect in his generations. Next slide. And here's and it, what happens here is they can see somehow God gave them I don't understand this part, but I know it's there because the giants were there after the flood. And how were they after the flood? Somehow the God the Lord didn't fully punish these angels for what they did the first time. But then they thought, "Well, let's do it again." And then they did it again and there were giants in the promised land. Why were they in the promised land? Because God told them, he told them that, that it was going to happen in the promised land. He gave them all of the prophecies were directly connected to Jerusalem and directly connected to Israel. And they're thinking, hmm, so if we can corrupt the promised land, just like the seed of the woman, then we can prevent this from happening. So they do it again. Goliath was how big? Nine feet tall. He had six fingers and six toes. That, that seems like natural, doesn't it? That's like we see that every day. No, we don't see that at all. The Bible says that Moses killed the king of Og who lived on a bed that was 15 feet long. That's a giant. Sorry. David slayed giants. He not a Goliath had brothers. They were at sons of the Anakim, which is the sons of the, of the Nephilim, which are the sons of the Raphaim. They, they, they were there. And then after this period of time in the promised land, it seems that God put an end to it. Jude tells us that the angels that did not keep their first estate, those who left their estate, okay, they left their own habitation. He bound them in chains and darkness until the judgment of the great day. For they gave themselves over to fornication and they went after bodies that were not their kind. So not all demonic angels have been bound in Tartarus or bound in hell. But this group of angels that did this, they're bound in hell. And they no longer have any free range because they transgressed. And here it is in Peter, same things, talking about the same thing. God spared not the angels that sinned by leaving their first estate, but threw them to hell, and he uses the word Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So these angels that did this, I'm trying to show you why God flooded the earth. Most people have no clue why there was a flood. They have no clue. No clue. 
They think God's just the God of judgment. They think God's just beating people. They think God's just out to get them. That's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. So they're reserved in Tartarus. So if you want to know something about hell, I'll give you a little briefing on hell. Uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm a Bible expositor more than I am a preacher. I know my preaching kind of comes out, but like typically when I do exposition, I put so much information in there, it's like, whoa. So I'm giving you a lot of information, and I'm expounding this to you for a purpose. This, I, I have to sort of retard this part of me a lot because I really want to go at it when I, when I do this. So I'm trying to slow down. I'm trying to make it relevant to you. Hell, there's three, there's three words for hell in the Bible. There's Sheol, there's Gehenna, and there's Tartarus. Tartarus is what's known as the hottest hell. That's the hell that's reserved for devil and his angels. Sheol is the place of holding. So you want to know how this works? Those who die without Christ go to a place called Sheol. It's a place of holding. At the last day, Sheol gives up the dead. They stand before the Lord. The, their name is looked for in the book of life, which of course it isn't. Then their book of deeds is open. So then now they must account for their sins. And then they're judged and they're thrown to Gehenna. So they go from the, the, the dead now that die without Christ go to a place called Sheol. They do not go to Gehenna. Gehenna, which is the word for hell, the true word, the, the lake of fire, if you will, that does not happen until the final judgment. So we, in Christ, when we die, we immediately go to the Lord. We go to the realm of the spirit of his kingdom. We go immediately into his presence because of the cross, right? Those who die without Christ, they don't go to purgatory. They don't go to in-between. They don't pass go. They don't collect $200. That's why the gospel is very relative is important and important. People are dying every minute of every hour of every day, right? And they're dying in sin, and they're dying and not coming to Christ. If they die in that state, they are lost. They are not redeemable. You're redeemable only on this side. You're not redeemable on that one. You can give all the money you want to the pope. They're not coming. There's no purgatory. It doesn't exist. Not in your Bible. Bible says they go to Sheol and there they're held until the final judgment and at the final judgment they stand before the Lord and they are judged. You're judged but you're judged from the Bema seat. You're judged from the seat of the reward. Jesus is like wow okay good to see you. Let's see. What did you do for me? That's all it is. What did you do? What part of your father's business were you about? He's looking to reward you. You're in, you got the kingdom. The kingdom's yours. So it's, that's eternity and destiny. That's the two worlds. What we're living for in this life is for that reward. We have eternal life, but you're living for, some, for a destiny to be fulfilled so that when you stand before him, you're not standing there empty-handed. Anybody want to stand before a king empty-handed? My daughter's birthday was, this, was uh, last week, and we're going to see my daughter. You know, okay, she's my daughter. And my wife's like, we got to get flowers. We gotta get, you got to take me here. And I'm, there and I'm like, we got to go eat. And she's like, no, we got to go here. So we go here, and there's like, they don't have flowers. So you need to take me over here and got to get flowers. I'm like, why do we got to get flowers? She's like, I'm not showing up to her birthday without anything in my hands. No one wants to come to something that's empty-handed. No one wants to come to something in order to honor someone with nothing in your hands. You don't. You know, in Miami, Latins love hospitality. They're just like all about bringing something. You got to bring a trace leche. You got to bring something. You know what I mean? You got, you know, I don't even know. You, you got to have something in your hand. You know what I mean? It's like, we don't show up without anything. You show up with something. That's the way it is down here. I don't want to show up to the Lord, and I'm not going to stand there empty-handed. I refuse. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what i got to give. I don't care what i got to do. I don't care what has to be removed from my life. I'm not bringing Jesus a shell collection. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm going to find something that he desires, and I'm going to, bring, I'm going to at least have something in my hand that I can present to him and say, I didn't live for nothing, Jesus. I did not do anything. I gave what I had. I did what I could. I told my wife on my tombstone, she tells me not to do this. I go, I just, she goes, well, I go, on my tombstone, I want, he tried. That's all I want. 
He tried. He gave it a shot. He went all in. He tried. Sherry's like, come on. I was like, no, I'm serious. He tried. <laughs> Noah was perfect in his generation. So God floods the earth because of this. This is why. We don't know this world. It's important to understand that. The world of Noah was perfect, okay? This, the world of Noah was perfect. And I know I'm, I'm over time, but we started late, so that's not fair. Anyway, <laughs> the world of that, how many knows what's a, a, a circle is how, how many degrees? That's a perfect circumference, is it not? Is it? What's our Earth orbit? Anybody know? It's elliptical. It's 365 point something blank, 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 or whatever. It's not perfect. It's elliptical. This is, uh, this is, a perfe this is perpendicular. It's perfectly up and down. Our Earth is tipped at 27 degrees. The Earth that Noah was in, that's why people lived so long in the Earth of Noah, because it was a perfect atmosphere in a perfect orbit in a perfect circumstance. People, Adam was eternal, but even after they sinned, they were living 900 years. And the skeptics of the Bible go, how could people live 900 years? There are no way people could live 900 years. Well, not today, bro. But in that atmosphere, we breathe, we breathe an air, we breathe an oxygen that's corrosive. We have a sun that bombards us with UV, gamma, ultraviolet rays all day long. You think it's giving you a tan? It's killing you. That's really the truth. It's deteriorating you, as is the air that we breathe. Oxygen is toxic. The atmosphere that Noah was in, the earth was 360 degrees. How do we know? Every ancient calendar is based on 360 days. What sin did, sin, when God flooded the earth, this is why, again, I'll give you all the skeptics arguments. I've heard them all. There might be one or two I haven't heard, but these are the big ones. The earth's atmosphere cannot contain 40 days of water. Therefore, the flood of Noah is impossible. It's a myth. I'm like, really? Yeah, our atmosphere can't contain 40 days of water. But the atmosphere then, we have something, we have a vapor. Has anybody ever heard of the ozone? Well, that was a lot deeper and a lot thicker. It was a vapor canopy of water that surrounded the earth, that protected the earth from UV light. That's what it did. And God let loose the, flood, the, the fountains of, and he also let loose the fountains of the earth. Anybody going to what the transatlantic gulf is, the transatlantic trenches? There's a baseball seam, look it up. There's a baseball seam under the Atlantic Ocean that runs all the way around the earth. God split the earth and loosed the fountains of the deep. That's what the Bible says. The deluge came down and he loosed the fountains of the deep. And in doing so, he stretched the orbit of the earth. The orbit now became elliptical and he tipped the earth on its axis. Everything became out of center and a little off point because that's what sin does. And we are in a world that's not like that world. We don't know that world. We don't know it. We don't know that world. That's why when we judge even some of the stuff in the Old Testament, God killed all the Amalekites. Why did God kill all the Amalekites? Do you know a world that's infected all the way to the children with demonic presence? Do you? That's the Amalekites in the Old Testament. And do you know why? The blood had not been shed and the devil had full authority. Satan had full authority up until the time of Jesus. Read the book of Mark. Swing a cat and you'll hit a demon in that book. Demons were everywhere. You read the writings of the ancient church right after the gospel within the first few hundred years, that's all they were doing was manifesting and casting out devils. Why? Because the earth was infested. And do you know why? Because the devil had a right. He could do whatever he wanted whenever. He told Jesus, bow down, all these kingdoms belong to me. Did Jesus argue? He didn't argue. He knew that was right. Those kingdoms are his. But Jesus came to get it back, but he wasn't going to get it back the way the devil was telling him to. Nonetheless, that's the point. The, the earth was demonically infested. And so when you look at the Old Testament and you wonder why God's committing cultural genocide, as our millennial generation likes to, well, that's cultural genocide. I can't serve a God who would murder an entire culture. Really? 
Have you ever seen a culture that's infected demonically all the way through the children? He destroyed the Amalekites because he said it is all the way into their children. He spared Nineveh because he said their children are not infected. Read the story. That's the difference. Why did God spare Nineveh and destroy the Amalek? Because Amalek was infected through the children. In other words, there was no hope in their generation for this ever-changing. They were infected to the root. And then he spares Nineveh because he says there are 10,000 children in that city who have not bowed the knee to those gods. There's, there, there's children in that city that are redeemable. And so he spared Nineveh. <laughs> Jonah didn't want him to spare Nineveh. Jonah was like, I knew it. I knew it. Jonah was like, burn it, Lord. Burn the house down. You know, but no, he, he spared him. No, he tells him to grow, grow an ark. So this is, I did all that to bring you to these simple four points that I'm going to do in a very short amount of time. I want you to understand why God flooded the earth. It's important knowledge to know. It's so sad. When you ask pastors, why did, because the sin of man was so great. God flooded the earth. Really? What, what does that speak of his character? Do, do you think that's what he's acting on? You think that, that the sin of man just caused God to just go, that's it, I'm flooding it. That's it. When the earth is destroyed the second time, and it will be, there's going to be again another satanic intrusion through a guy called the Antichrist. And there'll be a one world religion, whatever that looks like, it's all gonna happen in some form or some way. And it won't be, it will be a unification of culture. I told first service, climate change isn't destroying the world, Christian. Okay? So stop stocking up carbon credits because climate change is not gonna destroy the earth. Human government is going to destroy the earth. One world unified human government, humanistic viewpoints. And people go, why do you believe that? Are you a meteorologist? And I say, nope, I'm a biblicist. Nothing is going to happen outside the context of this word, and there is not one place in there that speaks of global warming. It doesn't speak anything. We, but this is, the church preaches this because we want to be culturally relevant. So we want to, oh, we want to recycle. I'm all in on recycling. We want to get those paper straws. Anybody like those paper straws, by the way? Hello, we're saving the planet one lame straw at a time. Now, if that's you, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't say that we got to save it in our generation. Because when I was a kid, they told me by the time I reached this age, you were, are you with me? Remember when we were kids? They told us the same thing. The earth's not going to be here in 50 years. By the time you retire, this earth's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. The environment, the pollution, the corruption, no clean water, nothing. I grew up in Michigan where Lake Erie was 20% was, um, uh, potable, the, 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 uh, the lake. But within, I think, seven years, the water of the lake completely turned over. And with some mild conservation efforts, the lake was completely back to normal. We're stewards of this earth, ladies and gentlemen. The environment is not revolting against us. The God did not, and here's the big piece. We are biblicists. We are not meteorologists. We are not environmentalists. Environmental from the standpoint of stewardship, yes, we should respect the environment. We should steward the environment. We should never take what we do not put back. We should tend to the environment. We shouldn't rape the environment. All of that stuff, we should do our best, but we should not worship the environment. That's the difference. We're stewards of it. We're not worshipers of it. That's where the paradigm shifts. And the other problem is, is when we put a viewpoint on that that exceeds that which God has said. What does the Lord say? That's, that's what he says. 
And so our concern is in to what God says and to high value the opinion of the Lord rather than anybody else's opinion. And this is exactly what Noah did. Noah obeyed the Lord supremely. He obeyed the Lord above every other voice in culture. Every other voice. Next slide. What, what voices? He obeyed the Lord over doubt. Sometimes God speaks, but we have the voice of doubt. It overrides us. He obeyed the Lord over circumstances, over opinions, over culture, over fear. Noah's living in a world where it had never rained. There was no ocean. That world, it had never rained, and there was no ocean. There were rivers. This Pangaea was one landmass with rivers, okay? So we had one landmass, rivers, but no oceans. Noah's building a boat in the middle of the woods. It's never rained before. And the Bible says for 120 years, remember the environment was different, so Noah lived for a long time. For 120 years, Noah's building this boat, and he's preaching righteousness. Who's he preaching righteousness to? I'll tell you who. The tour buses. Because the tour buses were driving out there to see the guy in crazy land that's building the boat in the middle of the woods. They're selling tickets in town. You know, $29.95, double-decker going out there right now, going to go see the crazy guy building, the, building an ark in the woods. And Noah's standing up there, and they go, oh, you all here to see me? Well, let me tell you this. And they'd be like, oh, it's never rained before, you moron. A boat? What's a boat? Who needs a boat? <laughs> over doubt, over circumstances, over the opinions of other people. Some of the stuff the Lord tells you to do is crazy. Christians must be crazy. Sex outside of marriage, you guys don't do that? No, you guys are crazy. What's wrong with you? You give money to a church? What's wrong with you? You worship an unknown God? Ooh, ooh. You pray to the air? You're crazy. I mean, look at the stuff that we do. From a practical standpoint, it makes no sense because it's spiritual. Opinions of others, culture, and fear. He obeyed God supremely. Hope is the soil of faith. Noah obeyed consistently. He was given exact specs, and he did it according to the specs. He followed them to the letter. Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servant. I will eat because you have been faithful over a few things, because you've done what I told you to do. See here? See here? You didn't think there was a reward in the afterlife. Oh, because you have done faithful with what I have told you to be, in this world, in this world and in the one to come, I will make you ruler over many things. Enjoy the joy of the Lord. There's a reward to be had, Christian, that's beyond salvation. I want it. I don't know about you, but I want it. You won't get there and you won't look at me and go, you never told me. There's lots of pastors that never tell them that. And their churches are going to look at them and go, you never told me. You won't get it here. <laughs> Jesus has no problem with it. No problem. What do you want? According to your faith, so be it unto you. Ask for me and I'll give you the nations. Is that crazy? I had a word. A guy gave me a word. He said, the nations are going to come to you. And if, you could, if I could tell you, if I had the time to tell you the stories of the things that are like happening that I'm just beyond baffled to me at this particular moment in my life, I'm just, I'm just like, I don't even know where this is going, but I'm enjoying the ride. I just did a conference call with 24 pastors in India, and I'm going to do another one on the August the 7th. We're forming a thing. We're going to do Elevate Global. And um, seven years ago, I had a word. The Lord told me you're going to train pastors. And I was kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. I, I will, whatever. That's great. But I'm thinking, we'll do a ministry school, and we'll train some pastors, you know, kind of you know, your atypical thing. And then just this whole thing is formed and the Lord's been showing me, I'm gonna show you how the kingdom works, okay? You learn him, you learn who you are, you learn what you want. What do you want? 
Well, I'll tell you mine in a real brief nutshell. I learned, and I'm not going to get through the whole exercise, but I learned I want significance. I learned I want, um, I want significant. I'm kidding. This is how much I want what I want. I want legacy. I want significance. And I'll give you the third one here in a minute. And so what I began to do when I learned this about myself is I began to say yes to everything that matched that criteria. Is this significant? Is this going to produce a legacy? Is this, does this have any value or worth or anything like that? I want, this is what I want. I, I didn't want success. I wanted significance. And, and so God, I began to say yes to the things that God had for me. And so he would bring this opportunity to just talk to these guys in India. This was a while back ago. And I just said yes to it because it matched the criteria. We started a preschool, which we're still working on, by the way. We just have monster delays with the people that own the building. But we're, it's going to happen. We said yes to a preschool because it matched the criteria. And when you start saying, once you know him, you know you, and you know your criteria, you start saying yes to the things that match that criteria, destiny starts to form. And then when you start stepping into it, it becomes bigger than you ever realized. I'm working with these guys with 24 pastors in India. I only told the guy, you know, we, long story, I won't get into it all. But what the Lord showed me out of it all is to create a template. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I told my wife, I said, he's already giving me branding, like Elevate Global Mission India, Elevate Global Mission South Africa, Elevate Global Mission Philippines, like to create a template to where we could take what we do, a model, a prototype, and begin to take what we do there and begin to do the same thing and replicate it all over the world. Now, where'd that come from? Did that come from my genius? It didn't come from my genius. And when he showed that to me, I was like, whoa, you know, and just uh, an amazing, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is when you begin to obey God and you begin to step into the, what God tells you, things begin to form. The vision doesn't form on the front end. It speaks. When you move into the vision, the vision speaks. But if you are a slave to the, to the voice of doubt, you will not achieve it. If you are a slave to the opinions of others, you will not achieve it. If you are a slave to a culture and you have a cultural thinking rather than a kingdom thinking, you will not achieve it. If you are a slave to fear, you will not achieve it. If you listen to any voice more supreme than the Lord's, it won't happen. It won't happen. But if you begin to discern the Lord, know him, know you. Okay? This is, this is the map. And then know what you want. Know what you want. And then know what you want and then begin to believe God for things that match that criteria. And when things match that criteria, you start saying yes to it, even if you don't know what you're doing. And you start stepping through the door and you start watching God open up doors and you start watching God do things. It's crazy. I've got 24 pastors and they're on the thing. And I asked Alex yesterday, I said, what, what was the negatives? I want to hear the negatives. And I said, what's the positives? I said, I want to hear that, too. I said, I'm not afraid of the negatives. Tell me the negatives. He said, well, one guy wants a bicycle. I go, well, that's not going to happen. I said, the other guy wants to know when they're getting paid. I go, well, that's not going to happen either. I said, but what we're going to give them, we're going to give them wisdom, we're going to give them instruction, we're going to give them teaching. And if they can grasp what it is that we're going to give them, we're going to teach them to plant churches, and we're going to teach them to be culturally relevant in their society. And if they can grasp that, they're going to produce many bicycles over their lifetime. You know, if they can get that. And I said, so what we're offering them is much better than that. So that's the point. But the goal is to make a template. God will do it. Noah obeyed consistently. He was given specs. He did what the Lord asked him. Faithfulness is consistency over time. Noah, here's the last one. Noah obeyed immediately, and Noah obeyed completely. A lot of times people get, get the word. They get a word from the Lord, and they obey immediately. I'll give you one, and I'll give you another one. I'll just tell you from my own experience. If I'm, I don't want you guys thinking I'm sitting there talking about vanity, but it's the only experience I can relate to is my own, right? 
I can't speak for other people. Felt like the Lord told me to form a media company. Okay, going to form a media company. Feel like that's what we're going to do. We're going to do these things. I already have a map. There's lots of components to that. I can see it. Step into it. The vision starts opening. I'm like, wow. You know, so I do the LLC, do the whole thing, you know, all this stuff. Step into it. Realize I can't sustain what I want to do by myself. I have to have a staff, right? We have to have money in order to, to put people in place to execute the things that he's given. So therefore, I step into it by faith, and then I realize what I need. I go back to the Lord, and I go, I will do these things, but this is what has to happen. Within two weeks of me telling, me, telling him that, within two weeks, I'm standing right back there, and I wrote on the back of a page, grants, grants, grants. Had a guy walk up to me and goes, Pastor, you ever thought about getting grants for the church? You ever thought about that? I flipped the paper over. I was just writing this down this morning. He goes, I know a guy that used to get millions of dollars in grants to an organization downtown. He's not doing anything. He'll help you. I get the guy on the phone. We're in the process. A lot, lot, of, lot of tangles. You know, it's a system. You got to learn the system, right? But we, will, we are going to create a system, and we were going to create grant funding. And out of that grant funding, there's going to be an overlay between what we're doing with the grants and the type of people that we hire for the grants are gonna be gonna match the things that we need. We're gonna hire specific media people. They're gonna work in the context of the grant, but they're also gonna work in the context of the media company. We, also, we, we have this whole thing. But my, 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 what I'm trying to tell you is how he works. How he works. Sometimes you step into it and you can't go any further. And you know what he wants from you? Do you know what you need to go any further? Well, God, if God wanted me to do this, he would have provided the money. <laughs> I'm telling you, I have lived with Christian dumb my whole life. I'm sick of it. You know what he wants to know? Do you know what you need? And you go back to him and I go, I'll do it, but I need money. I got to have money. And you know what he asked me? I'm going to tell you right now what he asked me. You know what he asked me? Anybody know? How much do you need? That's what he asked me. And we think I'm going to wing a number. And I sat down and I gave him a number. I said, this is minimum. I said, this would be ideal, but this is minimum. This is minimum. Two weeks. Activation. Well, if God wanted it, he would have bring somebody in with a big check. Bring somebody in with a big check. Destiny shows up wearing work clothes, people. Jesus shows up with zippered dickies uniform on. You ready to get to work? You want destiny? Let's go. Let's work. Let's go. Let's go. It's a partnership. It doesn't happen in a void. This is how kingdom manifests, guys. This is how it works. This is how it continues and continues and continues. And what happens here, Noah did it obey. Noah did it immediately and he did it consistently. He didn't have an excuse. Look how many times an excuse happens here, right? We have all of these excuses in the Bible. Uh, go to the next slide. We have these people in the Bible. Jesus gives you an invitation. What destiny is, say this. Destiny is an invitation. My mandate is an invitation. He's not going to force you. He's going to put a compelling calling upon your life. He's going to give you a vision of who you are, what you can do, who you can be, what you can do with what he's given you, and how to propagate his kingdom through your life. He's going to show you but he's not going to do it for you. Somebody said, I got a father, he's going to die. I, got, I can't do it now. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Somebody else said, I got too much real estate, Jesus. Got to manage my property. Can't do it. Another one said, I got an oaken, I got a, this is funny, this is a car. I just bought a new team of oxen and I need to try them out. Dude, I just got the BMW M5. I got to take it for a tour. I just bought a boat. I mean, it's a, I just bought something. I need to enjoy what I bought. You know what Jesus does? He does two things. This is important. He does two things. When, he, when, people, when people reject what he offers, he tells them that they're not worthy of him. Lord's taught me this. What he offers me, and if he offers me something, he's taught me to never see what he's extending to me as a burden, but to see it as an honor. Isaiah 58 says this. Stop 
calling my Sabbath a burden. He said, you want my glory? Stop saying the things that I ask you to do are a burden. Stop saying coming to church is a burden. Stop saying worshiping and lifting my hands is a burden. Stop saying I got to give my tithe and offering is a burden. Stop saying whatever I ask of you, you complain and tell me it's a burden. It's the first thing he tells them. Take away from you the pointing of the finger, the striking of the fist, the anger, the violence that you have towards one another. And then he tells them, call my day holy. Stop telling me what I ask you is a burden. And you know what I do? I never say it's a burden. Never say it's a burden. You go, wow, this India thing, that's going to be a lot of work. You're going to say, oh, it's going to be a lot of work. I'm like, it's a lot of opportunity. No duh, it's a lot of work. No duh. Really? It's not a lot of work? Of course it's a lot of work. You don't think I'm overwhelmed by what I'm, what I, I already see what I have to do, and I realize it's going to happen. I know what I've got to do. I'm overwhelmed by almost everything I do. If you're a Christian and you don't live over your head, you're not living by faith, Christian. Jesus always calls you over your head. I'm not talking about overhead financial. I'm calling you over your head into what you're doing. You're always underqualified for what he's told you. If you're not doing that, you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not in partnership with him. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. It's just how it is. He tells them you're not worthy of me, and then the second thing he did is he rescinded the invitation. He handed that destiny to someone else. It's not salvation necessarily, unless you, of course, reject Jesus. But in our case, what it is is like, oh, you're doing that? Oh, wow, the Lord told me to do that 10 years ago. Yeah, I just never got around to it. Yeah, really? That's why this guy has it. This guy has it because he told you 10 years ago, and you couldn't grasp it. You couldn't understand your vo the voice that he was speaking to you. You were too bound by your own nonsense, too bound by your own stupidity, too bound by the voices and the fear and the doubt and all the crap that binds us, all of it, all of it. Let's just be honest. Stop playing games. Church, I can't stand these church games. And I listened to a lot of teaching. Oh, but God wants to do it. God, listen, man, has nothing to do with it. Just like if God was going to do it, if you don't think it's God's will, my goodness, if it was God's will, every person's destiny was God's will, God is always willing. Oh, how many times did someone ask Jesus if you're willing? And he said, no. Tell me. It's not there. And they asked him multiple times, if you're willing, if you're willing, if you're willing. Not once did he say he wasn't willing. He's willing. The question is, are you? Are you? Oh, well, then that puts responsibility on me, and I just can't have that. That might make me look bad. Well, get over yourself. You have to obey completely. So let's do this. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. We're going to pray this prayer. The question number one is, what voice in your life rules you? What voice in your life dominates you more than the voice of the Lord? Fear, culture, opinion, failure, hurt, pain, vengeance. It's just a question for you to be aware. Are there, are there voices beyond the Spirit of God that bind me, that control me, that dominate me? Where are the inconsistencies in your faith and your obedience? What do you start but not finish? It's just a question. Then the qu next question on that one would be, why am I inconsistent? Why am I inconsistent? And let the lie be exposed. Most people are inconsistent because they're afraid to fail. Most people are inconsistent because they're afraid to succeed. There's lots of reasons. If you ask the Lord, where am I inconsistent? And then when he shows you, then ask him why and let him tell you the lie that you believe because you believe a lie. That's why. Oh, no, I believe truth. No, you believe a lie. That's why you're bound. You believe a lie, it's a subconscious lie, not a conscious lie. It's in you. You believe you're not worthy. You believe you won't make it. You believe it's not worth it. There's some lie that you believe. What do you know to do but you have not started or you quit? That's the next one. Lots of people, man, God's told them to do stuff. They don't do it. They just don't do it. Give me a word, Pastor. You got a word for me, Pastor? 
Ah, here one. It's called do what you're told. You know? I've watched people get words. What did he tell you five years ago? I keep hearing five years. Did he tell you something five years? Oh, yeah, five years ago he told me that. Have you done anything like that? No, I haven't done anything like that. Well, the Lord says you go back to what he told you five years ago and do it. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, if it's still relevant, sometimes God gave you a word. You haven't done it in 25 years, so that word's no longer relevant. The ship has sailed, right? It's true. We have friends that say, God told me to plant this business 25 years ago. Well, 25 years ago, that business was relevant. 25 years later, that business is no longer relevant. So that word, well, I, he, I got to go back and do the business he told me 25 years ago. Uh, sorry. You know, we're not in, you know, we're not 1989 anymore, guys. We're, you know, we're 1992, whatever we are. We're not in that era anymore. That, that, we're no longer relevant. That, that's no longer, so it's now it's time to move on. Let's pray. You guys want to pray? I'm going to pray this prayer. Come on. What the Lord's going to do here, Jesus takes you at your word. When you pray these prayers, these are dangerous prayers. I like dangerous prayers. Stand to your feet if you would, please. Anybody like dangerous prayers? Armed and dangerous. You're the Christian. This is what you tell the devil. <laughs> this is what you tell the demons. This is what you tell society. I'm the Christian the devil warned you about. That's the type of people we want to raise up. We want to raise up the type of Christian that the devil warns people about. Okay. Armed and dangerous. When ask the Holy Spirit, he's going to move. He's going to give you permission. What's going to happen when we pray this? You're going to ask him, hey, Lord, show me all the voices I believe above all others. And all of a sudden, you're going to, you're going to start realizing how dominated you are of fear this week. You're going to start realizing the negative things that your parents said about you still rule you. He's going to start reminding you of this. This is what's going to happen to you. Some of you, when you ask the Holy Spirit this, you're, he just immediately wrecks you. Oh, ever since I prayed that prayer, everything's gone wrong. No, he's showing you something. He's showing you that you're bound by the opinions of others. He's showing you. You asked him to show you where the voice was in your life, and he's showing it to you. You understand how this works? Okay, let me show you how this works. So let's pray. Say, Jesus, I believe faith is the currency of heaven. So I ask for more of this currency. I ask so that I may please you and so that I may move mountains in your name. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Down the roller coaster. Holy Spirit, I give you permission for your voice. To rule me above all others. Show me where other voices dominate my life. Give me the courage and the avenue to remove these voices from my life. I choose to be consistent. I cannot do all things, but I can do some things. So I choose to do what I can do consistently. And with excellence, I choose to obey immediately. Lord, forgive me for my delays. Forgive me for my excuses. I will delay no more. I give up all of my excuses. And I choose to obey you completely. As you say, I will do. I give you, Holy Spirit, permission to teach me, to lead me, and to grow me in these areas. In Jesus' name. You believe it? Amen. Let me bless you. We have a prayer team. We have, we actually, we have a prayer prophetic team over there. So both of these men are graduates of the School of the Prophetic. So if you need a
prayer or you need word this morning, we have it. So let, let's, let's go for it. Let me bless you. Just receive the blessing. May the Lord bless you. Bless in your coming in. Bless in your going out. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you.